this week on Hope for the Broken. See, the real fear of the future is a lack of trusting God for your future. The real fear of losing a job or income is in not trusting God to provide for your every need. The real fear in relationships is trying to hold on to things and trying to do things in your own power. But when you've trusted God in these things, you come to know that He was faithful then, He'll be faithful now, and He'll be faithful into the future. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we begin a new year as we dive back into our sermon series called Life Lessons. In this sermon series, we look at the lessons the Lord has given us in 1 Samuel. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part 14, titled Finding Courage. Listen, last January of 2023, we began a series of sermons working our way through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. That led up to Easter of 2023, and then we pursued other topics throughout the year. And now we come almost full circle back to where we're going to pick up where we left off in our study in 1 Samuel. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 17 here this morning. Now, by way of review and to catch you up, you know, as to what's happening in our study at this point, 1 Samuel is a book about one of the darkest times in Israel's history. Uh, it was a time where the end of Judges uh, concludes that time period, and 1 Samuel picks up right after Judges. So chrono- uh, chronologically, 1 Samuel comes after the book of Judges. Well, at the end of Judges, it simply says that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. In other words, a moral compass had been lost. Everybody was just doing their own thing, regardless of consequences and things like that. It was a dark time in Israel's history. But even in that time period, God was at work. There was a young lady by the name of Hannah whose womb had been closed. And she prayed earnestly that God would give her a son. And she cried out to him on multiple occasions. And God granted her prayer request. She gave birth to Samuel. And what God was doing is even in the light of evil leaders of the day, evil spiritual leaders, God was raising up the next generation of godly leaders. And while severe punishment awaited those evil leaders, uh, God's anointing came upon Samuel. He learned to hear God's voice. He learned to be obedient to God. And he led the people Uh, In that way, the nation of Israel flourished under his leadership. But eventually, the people demand a king. They look at all the other neighboring nations around them, and they notice that they have an earthly king in position. And instead, God is reigning. It's a theocracy at this point. But the people demand a king. God was not yet ready to give them a king. But God granted their request, and he gave them King Saul. Now, the people were pleased with King Saul. Because he stood head and shoulders above anyone else. He was their giant warrior. And the people were very pleased. But it didn't take long for things to begin going backwards. Because King Saul was only after personal gain. And as a result, God rejects Saul's kingship. And the search for the next king is on. 
Samuel looks and he follows the Lord lead, the Lord's lead to a man named Jesse who had eight sons and he sought the, the will of the Lord and anointing the next king of Israel from Jesse's uh, sons. Well, none of the usual suspects was who God had called. And then there was David, the shepherd boy, the little old shepherd boy. boy. That was the one that was then anointed the next king of Israel. But David was a boy and was not yet ready for him to take kingship. In fact, 37 years will pass from his anointing to when he takes the throne. Today, we come to one of the most famous, if not the most famous, passage in the Old Testament, David and Goliath. We're going to pick up our study in looking at chapter 17 in a message that I've entitled, Finding Courage. So I want you to turn there as we read along. But ultimately, this is a story not about an underdog. This is a story about God overcoming and facing fears on our behalf. You know, I came across an article this week that was entitled America's Most Common Fears. And this article listed all the usual suspects of fears. You know, claustrophobia. Anybody in here claustrophobic, right? The fear of small spaces, right? There is aviophobia, the fear of flying. There is trypanophobia, the fear of needles. But the number one fear remains a fear for what seems like generation after generation. It is glossophobia. That is the fear of public speaking. Nowhere on the list of top 10 was the fear of death. So in the words of the great theologian Seinfeld, people would much rather when they're attending a funeral be in the casket than the one giving the eulogy, right? People are afraid of public speaking. Well, in our passage this morning, the Israelite army is suffering from fee-fi-phobia. Now, that's funny. You'll get it here in just a moment. I promise you. It'll hit you and it'll be good. They're suffering from a fear of a giant, right? The Israelites are shaking in their armor because of a man named Goliath. And in this popular story, there's a powerful spiritual reality that I think applies to our lives today. And I want to share that with you this morning. We're going to work our way through the story. And I know for many of you, this may be a familiar passage, but I hope to be able to pull out some interesting information, maybe that's new to you or that you haven't heard in a really long time and work our way through the entire story. And then at the end of that, I want to come up with two life lessons that I believe uh, apply to our lives here today. So with that said, you follow along in your copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, there's one on the seat rack in front of you, or you can follow along on the screens as we learn the story. We see the story of David and Goliath. 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up in a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Now, let's just pause here for just a moment. The the Philistines were like the arch enemies of Israel. They were a group of people that were living in the promised land. You remember God had promised them this promised land and ultimately led them to where they crossed the Jordan after Moses died and, and God was giving them this, this land. 
Well, when they crossed over the Jordan, God told the Israelites, I want you to drive out all the other nations in this promised land so that only you occupy it. But for a variety of reasons, the Israelites didn't do that. They compromised a little bit. They made compromises along the way. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 17, generations later from that compromise, they're reeling from those compromises. And one of the reasons that the Jews did not drive out the Philistines is because they were afraid of them. The Philistines were strong and technologically advanced for that time. This story sits in what we call the Iron Age. And the Philistines were the first civilization to begin to work with bronze and iron. And as a result of their experiences, they made weaponry that was considered very advanced for their time. And as a result, the Israelites feared the Philistines. Now, God told the Jews, you don't have to fear because I'm going to give you the victory. But yet they doubted God in that circumstance. They made a compromise. And the result is they come face to face in terror because of that very compromise. A life lesson that we learn here is to never doubt God. A lack of obedience to carry through with what God is asking us to or the result in in compromising godly convictions is that you will pay for it later. And that's exactly what we encounter here in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're also told about the location where this battle uh, is drawn up. In fact, I brought a picture to kind of show you uh, a little bit about what that valley looks like. This is modern day Valley of Elah. Now, on here, you'll see where each of the armies were gathered. Now, this was revolutionary to me whenever I saw this picture. Because one of the questions I had in my mind was like, I envisioned like a mountain, you know, like when you go skiing, like a a mountain, right, on either side and a valley down below. And I'm like, how in the world would Goliath climb down the mountain every single day, morning and night, you know, and, and how would they even see and hear him if he's shouting at the bottom of this, But you'd see it's not necessarily a mountain. It's a valley with two hills on it. And on either side of that brown uh, farmland is a hill. And on one hill, the far hills where the Philistines were gathered. And on the near hill was where the Israelites were gathered. And the battle of David and Goliath took place down in that valley, which had a brook that ran through it. So when it says that David picked up five smooth stones, we're going to read that in just a moment. He picked them up out of that brook. Right? And so, so that's the setting. That's what it looks like there. It's about a mile wide, so the armies would be very visible to one another. This was all playing out before the entire gathering of both armies. That's the stage. Now let's see what develops. Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits, and a span. A couple of things here. First of all, the word champion translated in the original language means a man between the two. The idea here is that Goliath was Philista's champion. And and what would happen is, is that you would send forth your champion to represent you in battle. We're going to talk a little bit about representative warfare in just a moment, but quite literally, the champion of that side would stand between the two armies. And so the word champion, that's what it means, a man between the two. The second thing that we notice here that's important to take note of is Goliath's intimidating size. We're told here that he was six cubits and a span. That would make him about nine and a half feet tall. 
nine feet, nine inches tall. Now, there's a lot of skeptics here that really try to use this passage to disprove the scriptures. And one of the things that they'll say is they'll say, well, there's no person that could ever be that tall. Well, we know that that's the case. You look up, Google the man Robert Wadlow, and you'll see this was a giant of a man. Like he, he, was, he was like nine feet tall. So it's, it's definitely possible. But they'll also point to this and say, well, there's a discrepancy in the scriptures. Because this, this, what we just read, six cubits and a span, is a translation from the Hebrew text called the Masoretic text. But the translation from the Septuagint, which the Septuagint is the Greek translation from the original Hebrew, the Septuagint says that he was four cubits and a span. Six cubits and a span would be nine and a half feet tall. Four cubits and a span would be six foot nine inches tall. And so I tell you this to, to, first of all, make you aware of the discrepancy so that whenever a skeptic comes to you and says, see, the Bible's not true, you can say, oh, I already know all about that. That's no big deal. And one of the reasons, there's a variety of reasons why this could be a discrepancy. One of them is because in Hebrew, the number four and the number six are very closely related. And perhaps it was jotted down wrong or who knows. So we don't know the exact size of Goliath, but here's the deal. The size of Goliath, his actual height, isn't the point here. The point here is that he's extremely intimidating. Because let's take the smaller version of it. Let's say Goliath is six foot, nine inches tall. Well, guess what the average Hebrew's height was in that day? Five foot three. So six nine to five foot three is still a giant of a man, right? And more than just being a giant of a man, this dude had to be extremely strong. How do we know that, that Goliath had to be strong in addition to just being tall? Well, we see that in his armor. You have to be a strong guy to carry his armor. Let me show it to you. Verse 5. It says, he, being Goliath, had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. That's not postage stamps, right? I mean, coat of mail, think coat of scales, right? This is a warrior's uh, vest. And the weight of just the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Let me translate that to you. Just the coat was 121 pounds. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, just the spearhead, or 15 pounds. I mean, that's a giant weighted spear. And his shield bearer went out before him. In other words, his intern. Hey, I need you to go out in front of me. Poor intern, right? All in all, Goliath's armor weighed about 200 pounds. Now, you've got to be a massive dude to be able to effectively fight in 200 pounds of armor, right? So the point of the story is not his exact height. It's the intimidation factor that he brought to this whole situation. Let's keep reading verse 8. And he stood, Goliath stood, and he shouted at the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw? Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, "I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together." Now, this is the picture of representative warfare. 
a very common practice in that day and time, and you would send a champion of each side, and the result of that one battle would determine the result of the whole. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, it's interesting that the writer tells us that Saul, he mentions specifically Saul, because they were all dismayed, right? But this writer is intentional in mentioning Saul. Why would he be intentional in mentioning Saul? Well, remember who Saul is. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was their giant warrior. He was Israelites' intimidating warrior. And yet Israel's intimidating warrior was afraid and dismayed. He was He was afraid. He was terrified. That's the scene. And it's at this point that we kind of get one of these, meanwhile, back at the ranch kind of a things. The the camera pans back to David and what David is doing. So it kind of leaves that scene, goes to David, verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old. In other words, Jesse was old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went into the uh, battle were uh, uh, Aliab, the firstborn. Next to him was Abinadab. And then the third was Shammah. Man, I worked hard on that all week and I butchered it. Number 14, David was the youngest The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And for 40 days, Goliath came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. What we have going on here is David is still too young to join the Israeli army. He's not old enough, but his older brothers were. And Jesse, advanced in years, was beginning to worry about his three oldest boys. And so he sent David on an errand. And to give David a reason for the errand, he gives him a snack. That's basically what he's taking to his brothers is a snack. And so David runs this errand and he wanted a token. That would be proof that his sons were still okay. Verse 19, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. In other words, David is still caring for sheep here. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they ran, fled from him, and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. You know what? The king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and he will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David comes upon a pathetic scene. 
One that is like Groundhog Day for 40 days. The same thing. The taunting of this giant morning and evening. The Israelites, every morning, hey, this is the day, right? We're going to draw up for battle. We're going to run to the battle. We're going to be brave today. And then Goliath starts barking, and they start running, right? This is the pathetic scene that David comes upon. But watch how David replies to all that he sees that is going on. Verse 26, and David said to the man who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? In other words, tell me again, what's the reward? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. In other words, verse 25 is the reward. Riches from the king, marriage to the king's daughter, making you, making you royalty, and no taxes. That's what it means to free your father's house. No taxes for that person's family for life. And even with that reward on the table, what do they all do? They run and hide. And to be honest, I think I would too. Like I'm going, that reward is cool. But it's not cool if you're dead, right? Like, what's the point of that? And so they would all run and hide. But David, David's different. David sees this whole situation. He's like, that's the reward? And you're going to let this dude talk like that? Like, who is he? Verse 28. Now, Eliab, the eldest brother, when he heard David speak to the man, Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he says, why have you come down here? And who did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Now I want you to pay attention to what's happening here. David is the only person in the whole of Israel's representation that's willing to say, who is this Goliath guy? He's the only one demonstrating any kind of faith. He's standing out. And look what happens. His brother ridicules him. It's almost like you can sense the bitterness that Eliab has in being looked over as the next king of Israel. Remember, Eliab was brought out, and Samuel said, nope, not it, not it, not it. And it landed on who? David. So Eliab has this bad sibling rivalry with his little brother, David. And you can sense it here. Look at what David says to his brother. What have I done now? <laughs> this must have been a common thing. What are, was it not but a word? And he turned away from his brother and turned to another and spoke the same way. And the pe- people answered him as before. You know, sometimes the harshest critics are the ones that are supposed to be on the same team. Here Eliab is. He's, he's just like the rest of them. Scared to death. But his brother, his brother's showing faith. You would think Eliab would say, go get him, brother. But no, he ridicules him. Listen, the most discouraging opposition and faithfulness to God sometimes comes from those that should be on your side. That's a fact of life. In verse 31, someone tells Saul, hey, there's a dude that's talking hype here. And Saul's like, hey, I want to meet this guy. And then walks in David. Verse 33 Saul sees David, and he says to him, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. Listen, you're but a youth. Bruh, 
You're doing too much, right? And besides, Goliath has been a man of war from his youth. In other words, Goliath has socks that are older than you, David. Like, I mean, he's twice your size. He's way more experienced. You don't stand a chance here. You know what David does in that case? He says, okay, you've given me Goliath's resume. Let me give you my resume. Verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after that lion. I went after that bear and I struck him and delivered that lamb out of his mouth. And if that lion or that bear rose up against me, I just caught him by the beard and I struck him and killed him. Now that's no joke, y'all. That's like, like whenever I was getting ready to go on a mission trip, Kathy and I were going on a mission trip. We're going to be in the jungle. Kathy's dad, he goes, listen, if there's a wild animal that gets after you, Kathy, just outrun Chris, right? That's all you got to do. And so I'm not fighting a bear or a lion, right? I'm running and I'm going to try to outrun somebody. But David, David grabbed him by his beard. And by the way, bears with beards? What? Like what kind of bear is that? David goes on, verse 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. See, David is saying, listen, he hasn't just taken a sheep. He hasn't just offended by stealing sheep here. Look what he says. He has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. In other words, good luck dead, David, right? That's what Saul was saying. Then Saul, in an act of kindness says, let me clothe you with my armor, verse 38. Now remember, Saul is head and shoulders above everyone. David is but a youth. How do you think his armor is going to fit David? It says he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. He tried to go in vain, for he had not tested them. He had not tried them on. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these. I've not tested them. So David put them off. In other words, I can't wear this clown suit, right? I can't do this. I'm just going to go with what I know. Verse 40. So David took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer. There's the intern again. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. In other words, seriously, this is who you're going to send out to me? The Philistine said to David, come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beast of the field. Now that's smack talk, right? I'm going to coach my boys in basketball. I want you to say that on the court, right? That'd be amazing. Verse 45, then David pipes up and he says to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and a spear with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down. I'll cut off your head. And I'll give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth is going to know that there's a God in Israel. And all that is in this assembly will know that the Lord saves. But he doesn't save with sword and spear. 
The battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Now, that's a good comeback. Verse 48, when the Philistine rose and came near to meet David, what did David do? David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, and he took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone, the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell flat on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with just a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in David's hand. So David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut his head off with it. How bad is that? You get killed and decapitated by your own sword. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout. They pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. What an amazing chain of events. What an amazing story. Epic. The underdog. You could see the headlines. The underdog rules. The lower seed knocks off the top seed. But there are two life lessons that are far greater than that that I want to share with you here this morning. The first life lesson is this. It is the Lord that fights our battles. The Lord fights our battles. Jesus, our champion, fights our biggest battles. You know, I've heard many sermons that will preach this story and they'll talk about the five stones that slay your giants. And and there may be some application of that, I don't know, but I don't think that's the point of this story. I I don't think that that's it at all. Well, then what's the story about? Well, the temptation is for us to see ourselves with David. The temptation when we read this story is we put ourselves in with David. But listen, if we're all honest here, we're not David. We're the Israelites shaking in our armor, right? We have a tendency to look at our circumstances and be filled with fear. I mean, a little bit of transparency here, like just a little bit of vulnerability. I am way more often filled with fear than I am with faith. I mean, we have to make t-shirts that say faith over fear. Like, it's got to remind us that we got to choose faith over fear. That's because we're all fearful at some level, right? I mean, if we're honest, we are the fearful army of Israel. We're not David. We're often fearful of the uncertain future. Fearful that our marriage is not going to work out. Fearful we might lose our job. Fearful of the medical diagnosis we received. Fearful of failure or fearful, fearful of some other issue in our lives. The reality is, is that we lack courage to face our giants. That's the truth. But just like the Jews in this story, we tend to focus on the wrong giant. The Jews were focused on who? Goliath. Goliath's not the real issue here. He's not. 
He said, well, how can you say that Goliath isn't the real issue here? Because he was taken out with a sling and a stone, right? That's not the real issue. So what's the real issue? The real issue is the disobedience of God's people to do what he asked them to do. In other words, the real giant in this story is your sin and mine. And the truth be told, our sin is an insurmountable giant. You can't overcome it on your own. It's impossible. You and I can never do enough good. We can never be enough in order to match the perfection of a holy God. Scripture says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture also says that the wages of our sin is death. What we earn because of our disobedience is eternal separation from God. That is an insurmountable giant. And there's no way you can overcome your sin. Oh, but praise be to God that Jesus, who's the real David, the unlikely hero, enters into the representative battle on our behalf, squaring off against the giant of sin, and not with a slingshot and a stone, but with a cross and a tomb. Jesus was victorious over the giant of sin. By raising from the dead, Jesus slayed the giant of sin in your life and mine. And all we have to do is simply surrender and receive him as Lord and Savior of our lives. This is what I mean by the life lesson being that it is the Lord that fights our battles. The second life lesson that we learn here is that we find courage in the Lord. You and I can find courage in the Lord. Why? Well, because Jesus had victory over the real giant in our life, we can find courage to face the lesser giants in our lives. What are the lesser giants in our lives? The things that I mentioned that bring us fear. Maybe it's an addiction. That's a lesser giant, right? Maybe it's the fear of the future. It's a lesser giant. Maybe it's a relationship that is awry. That's a lesser giant. And because Jesus has overcome the real giant, you and I can find courage in the lesser giants. See, David saw things differently, and that's what filled him with faith. Everyone is looking at the size of the giant, but David, he's looking at the size of his God. And he's realizing that this really isn't a giant. I love what he says in the story, verse 34 through 37. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered him out of its mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has stuck, struck down both lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine, do you see what David's doing? He's bringing Goliath down to his size. This is just an uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God, the bigger person in this picture. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Listen, David had the courage that no one else had because he had the history with God. David had witnessed Time and time and time again, the faithfulness 
of God. See, we find courage when we come to know time and time again the faithfulness of our God. Because there is no obstacle, no giant that you and I will ever face that will ever be bigger than the living God who is on our side. David saw things differently. When people were looking at intimidation at their giant, David was recalling the times God had come through for him. Goliath defied the armies of the, livel, uh, of the living God. Goliath's the one in trouble here. Goliath's the one that should be shaking in his armor. But David found courage because he had history with God. Let me ask you a question. How are you building history with God in your life and in your family's life? How am I building a history where I come to know and understand the faithfulness of God. Can I tell you something? For David, David didn't build that history with God in the safe confines of a palace. He built that history with God when he chased down a lion and a bear. I think I would have a tendency to be like, well, 99 lambs on the wall, one fell down, 98 lambs on the wall, right? But David ran into scary situations. And it was in those scary situations that he saw the Lord's faithfulness to him. And after seeing that, David was convinced there's nothing that can overpower the faithfulness of the living God. History with God requires stepping out on faith. It requires being vulnerable how are you? How am I stepping out on faith? How have you seen God's faithfulness in the past? How are you building a history with God? When the people were fearful, David was fearless. And he was fearless not because of his own power and his own might and his own ability. He was fearless because of his God. See, the real fear of the future is a lack of trusting God for your future. The real fear of losing a job or income is in not trusting God to provide for your every need. The real fear in relationships is trying to hold on to things and trying to do things in your own power. But when you've trusted God in these things, you come to know that he was faithful then, he'll be faithful now, and he'll be faithful into the future. I read an article this week that was very powerful to me. I want to share it with you. It said, real courage does not arise from the assurance that we'll never encounter trouble. See, courage is not the absence of strife, nor is it the absence of fear in the midst of strife. Instead, courage comes from having a priceless and secure treasure that strife and fear cannot threaten. And that treasure is the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. See, the story of David and Goliath is more than the story of a victorious underdog. It is proof that the Lord has been victorious over the greatest giant that you and I will face. And he will continue to be faithful as we face the lesser giants in our lives. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. 
If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 930 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.